Hello and welcome to this edition of the IFS Zooms In with me, Paul Johnson. And with me today is Deputy Director of the IFS, Helen Miller, because today we're going to be talking about national insurance contributions. And Helen is an expert on that and indeed most other parts of the tax system. And of course, we're talking about national insurance contributions because we are in for a pretty whacking big rise in them uh, in April. For this episode, we've actually asked our followers on social media to submit some questions, which I will put to Helen as we talk about national insurance contributions, or NICs or NI, as we often call them for short. Helen, let's start with the basics. And we've actually got a question here from John Campbell. Hello, I'm John Campbell. I'm BBC Northern Ireland's economics and business editor. I have a very simple question. What exactly is national insurance and what is it not? So, a good place to start. National insurance contributions are our second largest tax in the UK. So they bring in about 20% of all of the government's revenue. And in short, they are a tax on earnings. So for most people, you'll start to pay national insurance contributions once you earn around £9,500 a year. And they'll come out of your pay packet just like income tax. But there are some differences compared to income tax. Notably, there is also a large employer element. So your employer pays some tax related to your wages. And that's pretty important. It accounts for over half of the revenue the government raises. And even though employees aren't paying it directly, you should probably still care because it may affect the wages that your firms are willing to pay you. So without employer and national insurance contributions, your wages may be higher. The self-employed also pay national insurance contributions It works a bit differently. Rates are lower because there's no equivalent of employer national insurance, but there is a broadly similar system in place. And importantly, national insurance is not charged on all forms of income. So it's not charged on investment incomes like dividends and capital gains. It's not charged on people who are working, but who happen to be above state pension age. And it's not charged on pension income. We'll come back to this, I'm sure. But think about what national insurance contributions are not. They are not really a contribution-based system in the sense that there is really barely any link now between how much you pay and the benefits you get. And the revenues the government raises are not hypothecated. So they're not they're not earmarked for special causes. You think about them as all being put into the same pot. So I would think of NICS really as being a second income tax, just one that isn't levied on all forms of income. So basically just a tax on earnings. And of course, that means when... National insurance contributions go up. It's only workers who pay the additional national insurance. People who get income from other sources don't. What one of the oddities of national insurance, Helen, isn't it, is that you've got this strange set of rates. It's rather strange, isn't it, that the rate falls from twelve percent um, once you're, as you were saying, earning more than about nine and a half thousand pounds a year to just two percent on earnings above £50,000 a year. I mean, we normally expect with income tax that rates go up from 20% to 40% to 45%. Why have we got this strange higher rate and then much lower rate once you go above what we call the upper earnings limit? So we have got this strange situation. I think it's partly a hangover from a system where there used to be a bigger link between contributions and benefits. So I guess it was kind of assumed that once you paid so much you didn't need to keep paying more and more and more but now so nowadays it's just an income tax and there is this weird system where the marginal rates the rate you pay on the extra pound does fall for higher earners and that often raises debates about whether NICs are regressive I think there's some confusion about that 
So what do we mean by regressive and progressive? So we talk about a tax on income or earnings as being progressive if the average tax rate, so that's not the marginal rate, but the rate where you take all of the tax you pay, divide it by how much income you have, if that rate is higher for those earning more. And conversely, a tax is regressive if the average tax rate is falling. So actually, national insurance contributions are progressive for most of the earnings distribution. So as you earn more, most people will pay more as a share of their earnings in national insurance contributions. But at the very top, for the roughly top 10% of people, that's not true. It becomes regressive. So you, you, you still pay more in cash terms, but you start to pay less as a share of your earnings. So there is a funny system with NICS. For most of the income distribution, it is uh, progressive. But because of this oddity of the 2% rate, it falls at the top and becomes regressive. But it's fair to say, isn't it, that if you think of national insurance as another tax on income or earnings, if you're an earner, then your overall marginal rate goes from 32%, that's 20% income tax plus 12% national insurance, up to 42% once you hit the upper threshold of 50,000. That's 40% income tax and 2% national insurance. So the whilst the national insurance, as you say, is regressive at that point, the overall tax on, on your earnings remains progressive in the sense that it goes up as your earnings go up. Yes. And I think one of the problems with having these two systems of income tax effectively is that it's really not very transparent. Most people will think that the marginal rates are, as you said, 20% and 40%, where really you should think of them as, for most people, 32% and 42%. So the fact that we have these two systems sitting alongside each other makes it very hard for people, to, I think, to know what, what their marginal tax rate is. To go off-piste, Slightly, it creates some interesting problems with the devolved administrations in Scotland in particular, something I've been looking at recently, where the Scots have income tax devolved, but they don't have national insurance devolved. And they've got this uh, very odd situation, which means that their national insurance rate goes down to 2% when earnings hit 50,000, but they haven't increased the point at which the 40% income tax rate comes in in the same way as we have in England. And that means they've actually got this overall income tax plus national insurance schedule, which goes up really to quite high levels between about 45,000 and £50,000 because they're paying 40% income tax and 12% national insurance contributions above that level. So they're paying at 52% on that level of earnings because they can't change their national insurance system at the same time as they change their income tax system. So sorry for that slight digression. But... Well, I think another way to highlight that madness, right, is to think that if you were starting from scratch, you might expect there to be one income tax schedule that you could just look up your rate. In fact, we've got a schedule overall that varies depending on how old you are, whether you're self-employed, if your income comes from earnings or dividends, which part of the country you live in, and so on and so on. So actually, we have very many tax schedules rather than just one simple one. Exactly so. One of the reasons that we have this, or one of the reasons that we have had this second tax on earnings, is that historically, at least, there was a link between national insurance contributions and benefits, and in particular, the state pension. We've actually had a few questions on Twitter asking us about the relationship between national insurance and the state pension. So, Helen, is there still a relationship? The basic answer is no. So, you're completely right, obviously, that there used to be. So our current system has its origins in the kind of an, in, in an act in 1911. There's up a national insurance system where you know, literally employers would go to the post office, buy stamps, put them on the cards of employees, and those stamps would get you some access to benefits. 
our current system, whereby you know, national insurance contributions are effectively a tax on earnings, goes back to 1975. And at that point, there was more of a link between you know, you'd pay more in, you'd get more out. But that link has been eroded over the decades to the point where now there is basically no link. So the biggest link of any type is the state pension, as you mentioned. And people do need to have at least 35 years of contributions to get a full state pension. But lots of people can get those contributions, even if they're not paying tax. Now, there's a whole bunch of ways to do that. But to give you a sense of that, you know, we said earlier that you have, you know, you don't start paying until you earn around nine and a half thousand pounds. But once you're earning around six thousand pounds, you'll be treated as, as if you've contributed through national insurance contributions. And you'll also be credited with contributions if you're not working. But if, for example, you are receiving child benefit for a young child, you're unemployed, sick, disabled, receiving universal credit and a bunch of other things as well. So most people, even if they're not earning enough to pay national insurance, will still qualify and get the full 35 years of contributions. And if after all of that, you still haven't got your 35 years, you can make voluntary contributions. So lots of people will get their state pension regardless of how much tax they pay. And for those who make the minimum contribution every year, it doesn't matter how much more you pay, you're not going to get a different state pension. You'll get the same flat rate state pension. So really, I think you know, the takeaway is that nowadays, how much you pay in national contributions and how much you get through the government benefits, it, it just, it's, it's not linked at all, really. They're just another tax. So essentially, you have to have lived in the UK for... 35 years worth of your adult life and pretty much not have been idle rich. If you've lived here for 35 years, if you've been working, if you've been unemployed, if you've been looking after children, if you've been disabled, then all of those things will count towards your, your pension. Yep. So not, no relationship really between national insurance and the state pension and indeed not really any relationship between national insurance and any other benefits you get. A very big difference from what was envisaged certainly by Beveridge when he introduced his social insurance system after the last war. And as Helen said, one of the reasons we have this strange system where the rate goes down um, after £50,000 is that is what's all that's left of what used to be a flat rate payment. National insurance used to be a flat rate payment for flat rate benefits. Uh, but it's certainly not that now. So that's a little bit of history. But something's happening in, in April. Helen, what's happening in April? So in April, all of the main rates of national insurance contributions for employees and the self-employed and employers are going up by 1.25 percentage points. So to make that concrete, the main rate for employees will rise from 12% to 13.25%. There'll also be an increase in the dividend tax rate, also by 1.25 percentage points. And then from next April, NICS rates will go back to normal and they'll be replaced by this new so-called health and social care levy. The only difference being that at that point, it will also be applied with the extra 1.25 percentage points to earnings above the state pension age. So basically an increase in the rates of national insurance from April. So how much will that cost someone earning, say, £30,000 a year? So if you're earning £30,000, so you're roughly the average earner, then in April, had there been no change in the tax rates, you'd currently be paying about £2,400 in national insurance contributions each year. And you'll be paying an additional roughly £250 because of the rate increase. But of course, how much more you pay depends on how much you earn. So to give you some more examples, if you're earning about £10,000, your bill will go up from about £14 to about £16. And if at the other end of the spectrum, you're earning £80,000, 
then you would have expected to be paying about five and a half thousand pounds a year and you'll now pay an extra 900 pounds more so they're you know they're fairly substantial increases for people and of course employers will also be paying a similar amount extra of course and of course employees therefore may feel that through lower wages so you know, initially employers will pay that but to the extent that wages are therefore lower than they otherwise would have been you know, employees might end up actually paying more than than just the, the increase in their own rates so quite a lot of additional tax being paid by people. We've also had a question from a sixth form student, and here's her question. My name's Tejao, and I'm an A-level student in South East London. How much revenue is the government expecting to raise from the national insurance increase, and what will this be used for? So the government thinks they'll raise about £13 billion that they can go on to spend on health and social care. So they said that initially they'll spend most of it on the NHS, but over time they'll spend more of it on the social care system. And I think it, you know that's that's a fairly chunky sum, and it will allow them to spend more. Um, and I think in the, in the short run, there's no reason to believe they won't do what they've said and spend it on those additional services. But I think it's worth stepping back and, and not falling into the trap of thinking, as many people do, that national insurance contributions more broadly are a hypothecated tax, like an earmarked tax. So. There is this formal thing called the National Insurance Fund, which you know, government accountants put the money in an insurance fund. There's nothing real about that. So there's no, there's no sense in which if the government raises more or less in national insurance in a given year, they're going to spend more or less on, on health care or social care or benefits. Really, we should think about national insurance in general as being you know, the government raises money, it all goes into a big pot and they decide what they want to spend it on. So in the short run, I think this additional £13 billion we should think of as going on health and social care but not think more broadly that Nick's is special in that regard. They could have raised the money through another tax and also spent it on health and social care. It didn't have to come through national insurance if they didn't want it to. So that, that is, unsurprisingly, uh, a question that another listener has posed. My name is Keith Gordon. I'm a barrister at Temple Tax Chambers specialising in tax disputes. I have a two-part question, if I may. Could the tax rises have been more effectively imposed by an increase to the income tax instead? And would that have been fairer so as to catch individuals with unearned income, for example, property profits? The short answer is yes, they definitely could have used income tax. There's no reason why they they couldn't. And it would have been simpler in that we would have been increasing the rate of a current tax rather than introducing you know, a whole new health and social care levy that was basically trying to extend national insurance contributions to those above the state pension age. So yes, they can do it. And yes, they could have done it. And it would have been simpler in many ways. Of course, as to fairness, people will always have different views on what's on what's fair. And ultimately, you want to look at the whole system, look at who's currently paying, what they're getting, and think about who should pay more. Of course, the current context is that the government put up these tax rates saying explicitly they wanted to fund more spending on health and social care. And arguably, they've set up a mechanism, this new health and social care levy, through which they may fund additional spending in future. So they've set up a precedent in that sense. And of course, that's spending that will benefit all of us, including pensioners, which is at least why some people will argue that it's not fair to therefore only raise the tax on the younger generations. And of course, as we talked about with Nick's, because they've chosen national insurance contributions, they're choosing a tax that falls more heavily on low earners. So it's a lot less progressive than income tax. And therefore, I think my personal view overall is that, yes, there's actually a very good case that they should have used income tax rather than national insurance contributions. And actually, more broadly, that we should be thinking about the fact that we, we already tax different kinds of incomes on very different rates, including we tax business incomes at lower rates than earned income, for example. So I think ideally, as we're increasing spending over time, we should think about how we tax different people and whether we're happy with that situation. 
I think you're quite mild there, really, Helen. Uh, it's, uh, it seems to me that other than the politics, there's no case at all, is there, for raising national insurance as opposed to income tax, for protecting people with unearned income and only taxing people with earned income, for protecting pensioners and only taxing workers, for doing something that's clearly less progressive and for doing something that distinguishes so much between the employed and the and, and the self-employed, as well as both of them and those living off pensions and so on. I mean, is, is there any case for having done it this way? Um, well, you know, tax have different effects and different incentive effects. So you can, you know, if you put up income tax, you might worry that, you know, you're taxing people who are older at higher rates and maybe people who are older are more responsive to tax rates because they're more likely to retire. So I think you can you can make some sort of technical arguments about the difference between NICs and an income tax. But look, big picture, I, you know, I agree with you. I think the fact that they're increasing taxes in order to increase spending that affect you know, that helps all of us, it is it is odd to exclude certain groups from that tax increase. Odd indeed. Um, it's worth it's worth also saying that the prime minister continually claims that this is a tax to pay for the backlog in the health service as a result of COVID and to pay for social care. It's pretty clear from our work that it's nothing of the sort. It's entirely a tax to pay for if you want to hypothecate it at all, the inevitable and ongoing increases in the cost of healthcare, the amount that we spend on health has been rising forever, effectively, and is continuing to rise. And indeed, our calculations suggest that if you were to continue to pay for the rising cost of health and social care through to just the end of this decade, then you might well need to take the national insurance levy, the health and social care levy, up from 1.25 percentage points to possibly as much as three percentage points. So if that's what the government continues to do, that turns out to be a much bigger new tax than the one that is currently being imposed. Helen, a couple more questions about national insurance as a whole. You've sort of hinted at this. We've got income tax. We've got national insurance. Why don't we just have a single tax on income? So in my view, we should. I think we should effectively merge income tax and national insurance. I mean, we mentioned that national insurance was originally set up as a contribution-based system, and we could move back in that direction and make it more linked. So the more you paid, the more you got out. We could have a debate about whether or not to do that. But that's not the direction of travel that we have. It's not an active debate. Therefore, I think given what we've got currently, if that's what we want to have, we should have stopped the pretense of having two taxes and just have one tax. There's not much benefit from this second tax. As we said, the credits you get are very, very loosely linked, if, if at all, to how much tax you pay. So we could just unlink them all together. And I think there really are big costs in terms of transparency. We you mentioned this. Most people, I think, don't know their marginal tax rates because they just don't think about national insurance contributions. And that is a horrible starting point for thinking about a public debate about how high taxes should be and how different people should pay different rates of tax. So I think we'd be much better off if we had one single rate of income tax per bracket that everyone could see. Now, there would be some technical issues to iron out because they are different taxes with different tax bases to some degree. And some people will argue that that makes it hard to do. My my sort of glib view on that is that we can put a man on the moon. We could have one income tax. I I don't think it's beyond us. So, yes, it would be tricky in transition to to sort it out. But given that we really only have, we we have these two taxes that don't make much sense alongside each other, I think we should move towards one. What would you do about employers' contributions 
in that case, as you've said, that this is a tax not just on employees, but on employers as well. Would you merge just employee national insurance and income tax, or would you shove the whole lot together, creating you know, a rather explicit marginal tax on people of something like 45%? I mean, that would be pretty difficult, wouldn't it? Well, it would certainly be difficult politically because people don't know the reality. So revealing the reality would be shocking for people, but arguably that's one reason to do it. But no, I think I think that you've got a choice there, basically. You could put it all together and just have it be one tax on um, individuals. You could also clearly just main, maintain a separate payroll tax. So you could have a tax on individuals that effectively merged income tax and the sort of employee element of um, national insurance contributions and you can maintain a separate payroll tax if you wanted to and you could pick the thresholds of that and, and there's probably some appeal to doing that I think whichever way you go one issue that crops up very quickly that we have currently is how you treat the self-employed so at the moment self-employed people have a lower rate of national insurance than employees but much more importantly there is no equivalent of employer NICs on self-employed incomes which I think actually is a really big problem and I know listeners will be screaming at me for various reasons, saying, well, of course, there should be a lower rate. But actually, nowadays, the self-employed get the same government benefits as employees, basically. There are some tiny differences, but nothing like the difference that you can justify by the differences in tax rates. And people will say things like, well, you know, self-employed don't get holiday pay and sick pay and, and those kinds of things, which is true. But they're not government benefits. They're benefits that employers give their employees so to some degree, at least, they'll be reflected in lower wages for employees. So self-employed people can charge higher prices because they're not getting those benefits. And rather than thinking of this, this sort of the lack of national insurance contributions to self-employed people as helping the labour market, in many ways it's hurting because there are employers out there who might like to offer employment positions and there are people who would like to be employees, but they're not because employer nicks is sort of stopping those employment positions being created in the first place because it adds an extra tax. So basically, we currently have a tax penalty on employment that I think is a problem. So whether we you know, merged it all together or kept a separate payroll tax, I think there's a very strong case for adding something equivalent to the self-employed, which would you know, also politically be difficult and unpopular. But I think currently the, the, the tax penalty on employment is, is difficult and should be unpopular. Yeah, and I think that's an important way to look at it. This this is a tax penalty on those of us, the, the majority of working age people, of course, who are employees. And it's a tax penalty relative to pensioners. And it's a tax penalty relative to the self-employed. So you've talked a bit about the self-employed there, Helen. I mean, the other big difference, of course, is that pension income is not subject to national insurance contributions. Very often, Certainly in the past, people have talked about occupational pension income in particular as deferred pay. And as you've also said, it seems particularly odd that the group who will most immediately benefit the most from additional spending on health and social care are the pensioner population. Would a useful halfway house, at least, be simply to say we're going to impose national insurance contributions or maybe call it a surcharge and income tax? at the same level, on occupational pensions in payment? So I think the tricky thing with pensions is about how contributions were initially treated. So some people, many people, will have made their pension contributions you know, when they're working and they'll have paid no national insurance contributions at that point and then they'll come to take their pension income 
and they'll pay no national insurance contributions at that point either. So that's a form of earnings, deferred earnings, if you like, that's got no national insurance contributions at any point in time. And that seems to me to be very, very hard to justify why that, that doesn't get any tax at all. And therefore, in that case, simply putting national insurance contributions or, or a surcharge or whatever, however you want to label it onto pension income makes a lot of sense. I think where it gets tricky is that for some people and for some kinds of pension contributions, they did pay national insurance contributions on the way in. So they paid national insurance contributions before making, you know, before putting the money into a pension. And therefore, if you tax them on the way out again, then you've sort of double taxed some people. So that's an anomaly in the system. I think it's a bit strange that we have these, these dual system on the way in, but we do. So I think you know one way to solve that would be to put national insurance contributions onto pension income, but maybe not at full rates, maybe start at lower rates and increase over time. And we could obviously change how we treat contributions on the way in at the same time. So we could, for example, move to a system where, like income tax, nobody pays any tax on the way in and everyone pays tax on the way out. Um, but I do think the fact that contributions are treated differently up front makes it a bit of a, a bit less clear that we should obviously just put full rates on pension income. But the broader point that as we're spending more, you know, having tax rises that don't include pension income is a, is a pretty important choice. It's an important choice, and um, I'd go so far as say uh, an incorrect choice. You're being um, uncharacteristically um, <laughs> uh, holding back on this one, Helen. Uh, it's, uh, it does seem extraordinary to be raising taxes on earnings and uh, essentially leaving those who are dependent on other forms of income largely untouched. So that controversial note, or perhaps not terribly controversial note, it's probably time to bring this particular edition to an end. Thanks in particular to those of you who have asked us some questions. Thank you for listening to this episode of the IFS Zooms In. Please hit subscribe and rate us and share this episode with anyone who may be interested. To see more of our work on tax and some accessible explainers, do visit www.ifs.org.uk forward slash tax lab. And to further support our work, please do consider becoming a member of the IFS for as little as £5 a month. Stay well and see you soon.